Hello, and welcome to episode 83 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Gerd Schroeder-Turk, Professor of Mathematics and Statistics at Murdoch University in Perth. We'll be talking to the professor about who runs our universities and for whom. <laughs> professor Gerd Schroeder-Turk, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you are very welcome. Look, in May 2019, you shot to fame in Australia when you were interviewed in a fantastic ABC Four Corners documentary uh, called Cash Cows about Australian universities and their uses and abuses of international students. Can you tell us briefly what you told the ABC that proved so controversial? Mm. Yeah, I suppose I had uh, observed how international student recruitment uh, occurred uh, in Australia more broadly, but also at my university. And uh, there were elements to that which um, uh, I just had ethical concerns over. Uh, there were elements where I felt that uh, the way we were recruiting students, uh, and when I say we, I mean both Murdoch University and probably the sector more widely, uh, was um, neither in the interest of our academic standards, uh, nor was it in the interest of the welfare of the students. Uh, and it was um, just really quite wrong. So um, after uh, uh, many attempts to have things rectified through other processes, I eventually spoke to um, uh, the ABC about it. And we were, of course, on convergent pathways because at the very time I saw your ABC documentary, I was in the midst of preparing a paper for the Center for Independent Studies on international students and the controversies surrounding them. Um, now, a lot of people have asked... And I wish the ABC had uh, liked to know at the, yeah. at the time. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, Salvatore, did you get in trouble, you, you know, for being so outspoken about the university system? And I, I've always told them, no, I, I've always had complete academic freedom and even uh, speech rights at the University of Sydney. No one has ever bothered me in any way about speaking out about uh, university governance. But I, I gather that's been somewhat different from your own experience at Murdoch University. Mm, that, that, that has been different. Um, so I suppose it's, it's important to perhaps mention that, uh, of course, I have uh, the role of an academic at Murdoch University, and I also Howard now and held back then the role of a Senate member of uh, Murdoch University. Um, and I, I should actually say at this point today, I'm speaking to you as an academic uh, and I'm not uh, making any suggestion that my views are shared by my, my university. Um, but uh, I suppose what uh, ended up uh, happening was that um, uh, quickly after the Four Corners program, a uh, dispute uh, emerged over whether my actions were in line with my duties as a member of the Senate. Um, that then led to a court case, uh, or, or yeah, a court case over the over the um, uh, question whether I had breached my duties um, or not, and whether I could be removed from the Senate uh, or not. Uh, and I, I I realized that was largely a, a factual dispute. Uh, uh, over uh, the role of um, a senator. Um, when it became more personal, uh, and uh, I consider it a personal attack, is when the university countersued me uh, personally for damages 
and for uh, monetary damages that uh, it's specified to be in the millions. So this was really uh, turning a, a factual dispute, if you want, over the role of a, a governing board member uh, into a personal attack um, that uh, they would have known uh, would, um, you know, threaten my livelihood and destroy my life if successful. That's really scary. Uh, I, I mean, for, perhaps we should explain for our viewers just what an academic senate is. Yeah, sorry. I'm so, and the notation here is a little bit different depending on where you are. So, the uh -huh. most universities in Australia have uh, two uh, governing boards. One which is sometimes referred to as corporate governing board, but really it's the uh, overarching governing board. And uh, right. on the east coast, they are often called councils. Uh, here on the West Coast, they tend to be called Senates. Okay. Uh, and I'm a member of that board. Uh, in addition to that, there tends to be a, an academic governing board, which variably is called academic council or academic board or, or academic senate. Uh, and those are uh, boards that have um, uh, subordinate decision-making uh, powers in relation to academic matters. Yeah. But so oh. the Senate that I was on is essentially the... Uh, uh, the board of the uh, university, and it has some powers that are, are very similar to corporate boards. Now, before we leave the lawsuit behind, how did it turn out? Well, the uh, lawsuit uh, ended up in a settlement, uh, uh, and uh, there was a public announcement uh, at that settlement um, uh, where the key element really was that uh, I... Uh, remained uh, in my position. The uh, motion to remove me was uh, permanently withdrawn and the university clarified that I, I remain a valued member uh, of that of that Senate. So that was um, um, a very positive outcome mm. um, and really an outcome that enables me to work forward with them optimism uh, about the future of, of this of, of the institution where I still am and which I care deeply and uh, greatly about. Um, I think it is probably important to recognize that uh, um, you know the well, the out the the reason or, or I shouldn't say the reason, but it's it's likely that the the many public expressions in relation to uh, what had happened, uh, both by the public through a petition by the NTEU through um, you know uh, enabling members to express their opinion. Uh, through letters from colleagues and asso um, professional associations and uh, perhaps most importantly from uh, all the laureate fellows of the um, um, ARC, uh, that really had a huge influence uh, on it. Uh, and of course, it really has become one of the cases where, you know, academic freedom is put to a test. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that eventually academic freedom passed the test. I should mention that you, the NTEU, which you mentioned is the National Tertiary Education Union, yeah, that's that's union right, yes. of which we're both members. And I saw that you published an article in Australian Universities Review, which is the journal published by the NTEU, about uh, university governance. It seems like this whole experience led you to think deeply and not just think, but do some empirical research into the way Australian universities are governed and how their senates are composed. Can you tell us a little bit about the results of that research? Mm, yeah, yeah. So the uh, 
senates or, or the governing boards of universities in Australia, they tend to be um, uh, bigger than a typical corporate board. Uh, they are often sort of somewhere between uh, 15 and, and 25 members, perhaps. Um, there's uh, also often, you know, different categories of membership on it. Um, so, for example, for the West Australian ones, which are all unified, uh, there are um, there's uh, the, the Chancellor, there's the Vice-Chancellor, there's the President of the Academic uh, Board. Uh, there is then a category of um, up to three members, which are uh, government-appointed uh, members, so that's the government determining them. Then there's a category of uh, co-opted members, five co-opted members uh, who are determined by the Senate. Uh, then there are uh, uh, representatives by the alumni, so by the graduates of the university, uh, and there are now two uh, staff-elected representatives uh, left on, on those senates, uh, one for the academic staff and one for the non-academic staff. Um, so I suppose the uh, questions that I researched in particular in, in that article was the question whether um, these boards uh, are composed in a way that lead to um, effective uh, oversight uh, of the universities and effective guidance, right? Because uh, boards, of course, they have two purposes. One of them is uh, an oversight element to make sure things go the right way. But the other important one is really what, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's called strategy, but really I would like to refer to it as stewardship because it's sort of gentle guidance to make sure that we follow the principles that we that we want the unis to follow. Um, and um, yeah, so my research was was into, into, into that. Um, I suppose what, uh, one of the elements that ob obviously sticks out is that the number of staff representatives on this board, which are, and I'm using the term representative because uh, even though strictly speaking, it's the member elected by and from the staff, uh, those numbers are very low. As I said, there's one elected academic staff member on the board. Uh, uh, in, in, my in, in Murdoch's case, that's at the moment me, elected for three-year terms, and one professional staff member. So those, that representation through elected staff members is, is very low. Um, the other thing, I suppose, that the, the question, I suppose there are many uh, in this country who feel that some of the university senates have become too dominated uh, by um, external people who are on that board and who perhaps uh, don't bring enough prior experience in the university sector or in related sectors uh, with them. Um, and, and I believe I would, speaking generally, uh, share that, share that um, assertion. But you've suggested in your article and in op-eds that you've written that there should be more staff representatives on boards, Yet, in, and you've used the analogy of the private sector and private sector experience, but you know, in the private sector, it wouldn't be members of staff of a company who sit on that own company, their, their own company's board. It would be typically CEOs of other uh, companies. So, I mean, would you want to see a board of, a uni of universities in Australia dominated by vice chancellors and deputy vice chancellors from other universities uh now i uh, i absolutely wouldn't want want to say that i think there are a few elements to discuss so one of them is that 
universities, of course, are uh, different to companies in that they have a lot of autonomy. And, you know, the staff of a university uh, have a different status to the staff uh, of a uh, company. Uh, and I think in terms of, um, you know, enabling the, you know, actually enabling the academic body or the academic collegium to exercise, you know, some degree of autonomy, uh, it is important that um, staff is better uh, represented. But we are... And I should Sorry, and, we, and, we are represented on the academic boards, though. That is, you know, most universities, as you said in your introduction, have a, a overarching governing board, and then within that, an academic board that oversees the academic side of the university. Academic boards are absolutely dominated by staff members. So, mm -hmm. isn't that overarching senate the place to have outsiders looking in? I think that really depends a little bit on the role that you want that senate to take. If you reduce the senate to a uh, board which essentially oversees the uh, um, uh, compliance with corporate legislation and the uh, financial success and sustainability of the university, uh, perhaps. But actually, these boards are set up with uh, extremely broad powers um, to do almost whatever they want and what they see to be in the interest of the universities. Right. So now, universities have a very broad uh, set uh, of um, goals that they are meant to fulfill. And of course, really, these goals are often uh, spelled out really in quite principled form in the state legislation, you know, the, and, and we're talking about, uh, you know, conducting uh, research uh, and scholarship uh, that um, uh, enhances the, uh, 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 you know, the communities that we serve, uh, providing tertiary education of uh, high quality, um, you know, um, enabling uh, the uh, career progression and well-being of our graduates, and so on and so forth. So many of these uh, uh, functions, as they are called in legislation, are highly principled, and really it is these boards uh, that need to uh, oversee them. So universities are complex uh, uh, entities also in, for example, as we just uh, referred to before, academic freedom is one of those things which, of course, academics have for a reason, whereas uh, usual comp company employees don't. Uh, so I think in order to, uh, for this board with overarching powers to uh, be able to effective in managing a university, a deep uh, understanding uh, of uh, the long uh, tradition of how universities have operated is is really essential, uh, and equally um, uh, experience in what has worked and what works in universities and what doesn't work in universities is also also Im Im important. Mm. Um, that said, you know I think the core element is making sure that we get appropriate expertise onto these boards. Right, so I I do think there is a need to have a more reasonable representation of the university staff itself, and I should say in WA, for example, that uh, representation was reduced. So in 2016 or so, the legislation was changed, uh, and effectively that meant that uh, the staff representation uh, was reduced from three to one for UWA uh, and and Murdoch. Uh, and I think that was a, a poor move. Um, that said, 
uh, amongst the external members, I think there is also equally a difference between, and, and we need to debate the question, who do we want on these boards? Do we want CEOs of companies that uh, have uh, otherwise very little connection to the well, university? But who uh, hire who, our graduates? Who hire our graduates. But as you say in your own book, which I've been reading recently, <laughs> the purpose of the university is far greater than just to uh, provide employment pathways uh, for our students, right? There's really a big societal contribution. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally not saying that CEOs don't belong on these boards. They absolutely do. People like CFOs, uh, chief financial officers, absolutely do need to be there. We need to run our universities uh, commensurate with practices for uh, sometimes billion dollar industries. But I think we also need to recognize that there are groups uh, who uh, would greatly benefit uh, from greater presentation on these boards. And I'm thinking, for example, of you know the uh, presidents of uh, professional associations, you know, uh, people who are uh, otherwise in um, public sector entities which are closer to um, um, you know. Uh, uh, the, the higher education or to the educational principles, uh, I think a bit a bit more balance in in that regard would be would be very important. And well, you can see that really in the question of where we started off from the question of um, you know what is appropriate um, uh, uh, student recruitment, uh, for example, you know. Uh, boards should not only discuss the student numbers and their repli uh, uh, sorry their repercussions for university finances, but boards really should discuss the fundamental questions of our business models, right? With regards to international student recruitment, for example, one of those questions is: um, Should we aim to get towards higher degrees of direct enrollments rather than recruitment agent? Uh, enrollment. And this is a question which uh, very, very centrally underpins how we want uh, international education uh, to run. I was shocked 10 years ago to learn that recruitment agents even existed <laughs> for well, public that's, universities. That's right. But this uh, recruitment agents, uh, it, it's it's the standard mode of recruitment for Australian well, universities. It is now. Yeah. Approximately 75% of students are recruited through recruitment agents. Of international students, right. Of international students. Yeah. And these uh, uh, recruitment agents are basically paid a, a commission per student yeah. at the point Finders of... Fee. That's right. And I think I'm not saying this is uh, this is necessarily something that should be stopped. But I think to have the debate over what is the mode we, of recruitment we want, what is the one that enables best outcomes, what's in the best interest of the students, how does it relate to our financial outcomes? You know, these fundamental questions are really ones that I think the boards need to discuss. And in order to have that principal discussion, you need to have people who know the sector well, either from being immersed in the institution or from being immersed in an institution or for otherwise having a close interest in it. Right. Well, Gary, you were know? kind enough to mention my latest book, and I'll never pass an opportunity to plug a book. Uh, it's Australia's Universities Can They Neither Report. Do I. Oh, thank you. And as I call it, The Blue Book, 
Um, and I especially mention it because next Wednesday we will be launching the book at, here at the Center for Independent Studies. Uh, Professor Simon Haynes, the CEO of the Ramsey Center for Western Civilization, will be launching the book 6 p.m. Uh, next Wednesday. I believe that is uh, March 30th. Tickets are still available. So please get on the CIS website and, mm -hmm. and get a ticket if you haven't already. Um, Garrett, this is a live show. And the reason we do it live is so that we can take questions from members in the audience. And we have one question from Benjamin. Uh, for you. Should the federal government enact a national interest test to the funding of university courses and research? Um, I would remind uh, uh, everyone that, you know, institutional autonomy uh, is something which has served the uh, universities fairly well. Um, and <clears throat> uh, of course, that includes in particular the ability to decide what uh, courses are being offered and, and what ones not. Um, I don't believe that the government is particularly good at picking, picking winners. Uh, I think, um, you know, a combination of uh, the judgment by the universities in combination with what is attractive to the students um, is, is really, really important. Um, I think where we need to be really quite careful is when, uh, you know, when I went to university um, 30 years ago, uh, the breadth of courses that were being offered uh, was significantly smaller. Uh, and the choice of what university uh, courses to enroll in was far less influenced by marketing by the universities, right? Um, so I do think we are in a situation where, uh, uh, you know, we need to be cognizant that student decisions are influenced by marketing, uh, which is probably not entirely um, uh, altruistic, right? right. Um, so I think uh, that, that that's important to, to recognize. But uh, that said, I don't believe that a national interest test, a national interest test becomes very difficult because it is really um, difficult to decide what's actually in the in the long-term interest uh, of, of our society. And for example, the focus on, oh, sorry. Oh, so let, let me run through, because we have several questions that have come in. So let me, so first let me get to the second half of Benjamin's question, which is, would a national interest test or some other kind of, of enhanced oversight mechanism uh, assist in defanging the rise of "Quote unquote woke agendas," I might add, or or any self-indulgent agendas within universities. Um, I, yeah, but then you are passing on the responsibility for deciding what is in the national interest to a uh, to um, a, a government. Well, uh, our and, elected uh, representatives. Well, they are our elected representatives, but that doesn't, but the, uh, you know, there is a concept of academic freedom, which of course is really around uh, leaving academics to not only de only decide what they say, uh, 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 but uh, also it applies to teaching, right? And I think the uh, reality is that a lot of teaching, uh, <laughs> I think you do need to allow uh, 
voices in order to create progress. And sometimes the progress actually comes from voices that uh, seem voices or courses that seem the least, you know, seem, uh, you know, where, where, where you don't know beforehand how useful it's gonna, it's going to be. Okay. Um, Edward has a technical funding question. I'm going to, Edward, just ask you to email me about it. I'm happy to answer the question, it, but it's a technical question. Uh, Anthony is asking, should we have representatives on the council or Senate appointed by the leading professional bodies that graduates are expected to join? Should engineering bodies, business bodies, you know, accounting bodies, you know, should they all have representatives on university senates? Well, very practically, that it, it won't work because, of course, a typical university teaches dozens and dozens of courses, so you can't give. Well, each but we could have a body smattering a, of ten or twelve representatives of governing bodies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do. I do think that the professional associations and professional bodies really are the groups that I would like to see more strongly represented. What the exact mechanism is for making that that happen. Uh, is is perhaps uh, not entirely clear, uh, but uh, yes, I do agree that it would be useful. Benjamin has come back with the observation that the national interest test doesn't necessarily compromise academic freedom, since a university can still decide to run a course without taxpayer funds, even if a national interest test was applied to those courses that are uh, financed by the taxpayer. Mm. Well, I, I suppose in some ways I, I, I could uh, uh, respond to that question by saying that through the job readies, ready graduates uh, legislation, uh, the government uh, is, of course, directing or attempting to direct students into particular uh, courses. Um, the, and as such, you know, really, um, it, it, you know, it doesn't quite set a threshold for what uh, is uh, is okay to be taught and what not, but it certainly incentivizes some courses more strongly than others uh, financially. Um, I, I personally think that uh, you know most people who go into universities go into um, universities with the goal of uh, getting a, a strong education. Um, uh, and one that will set them up for success uh, in their uh, life and in their career. Um, I do believe that leaving the choice in um, the informed students' hands uh, as to what to study uh, is probably a better way of uh, asking the government to mandate uh, what is um, acceptable or not. Certainly um, in terms of deciding what's a woke course or not, uh, I don't believe that the government should be given a choice to make that decision what is woke and what is not. Now, in my part of the university, in the social sciences, we have a serious problem of a lack of viewpoint diversity. That is to say, if you do let universities simply decide what they should offer, well, we don't have a lot of diversity in the uh, among academics in thinking about what sorts of uh, topics we would teach. Is lack of viewpoint diversity also a problem in STEM, and, and I'm thinking specifically, you're in mathematics. A lot of our of our, of our listeners would think of mathematics as the least politis, least possible place we could find politics. What's been your own experience? Are, are even mathematics politicized in ways we might not realize? Um, I, 
I, I don't believe it is politicized uh, uh, to a, a significant degree. There are obviously uh, areas that become um, uh, uh, pretty hot topics in which then for years, sometimes decades, uh, you know, uh, uh, grow and attract more funding than uh, other, dis other other areas of mathematics. But I would say it is it is less politicized. The I agree that viewpoint diversity is important, but uh, I think that the key element that we're really, uh, so viewpoint diversity, of course, it comes uh, through a number of mechanisms. To begin with, there are the agents, which are the individual academics or staff or, or, or teachers. Then, of course, there are the departments and so on and so forth. Uh, I do think, you know, one of the biggest challenges that Australia faces at the moment is to empower its academics to uh, act as completely independent thinkers, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, when I say academics need to be empowered to criticize, then academics need to be empowered to call out things that are wrong in the running of their institution. Academics must equally be uh, empowered to have a very critical discourse around what is happening in their own area and their own field. Right, uh, and academics, in fact, even need to be able to critically look at their own career. So now this is where I think we really are seeing a big problem because uh, academics, through many mechanisms, are pushed into less and less uh, um, uh, uh, independence. And probably the key one is, and we can all think about it ourselves: what is it that makes us the most independent? Well, that's, of course, a knowledge that we are secure uh, in uh, our uh, position and livelihood, regardless of the position that we express. Mm. So now we are seeing a greater and greater and greater uh, uh, drive away from that. More academic positions that become short term, more academic positions that become tied to teaching only or largely. Uh, these are all things which are making us less independent, less independent to speak out when things happen in the universities that are wrong, but also less independent in, uh, uh, in, in being emancipated and empowered to steer the direction of our own disciplines and our own fields uh, by critical debate and critical right. reflection on what we do ourselves. Gerd, we have to wrap up, but I can't let you go without asking you, can you tell us in, in 30 seconds or less, <laughs> what what's hot in nanogeometry? Yeah, yes. Ah, well, there's plenty of things hot in, in nanogeometry. <laughs> so uh, nan uh, I, I personally uh, uh, look at uh, how, how nature uses uh, nanostructures to achieve um, functions and optical effects. And so, for example, one thing I tend to do is I tend to look at these these sort of uh, butterflies here uh, um, and I look at uh, where their colors come from. Um, in this case, it happens they are from a structure rather than from a pigment. Um, the key thing that for me is hot uh, is really the question of how does uh, nature manage to create these nanostructures uh, in a way which is, of course, organic. It happens in nature. It's, um, you know, energy efficient and uh, uh, it, it gives really good um, effects. So, uh, you know, I think, but that's my very personal take, uh, <laughs> looking at uh, nanostructures in nature 
It's, um, uh, it's, science it's, is always so much more inspirational than what we do in the social sciences, which always seems a little dirty by comparison. Um, Gerd Schroeder, but, but I disagree. If I can just make one last comment, I disagree with that. I really do think that the uh, distinction between whether sciences or humanities are more valuable or more useful or one more dirty than the other or one more principled <laughs> oh, yeah. than the other is really I, misplaced. I didn't say we more valuable. Really I, I said more yeah, pure yeah. in some sense. Professor Gerd Schroeder, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been great to have you. Thank you. Uh, thanks also to producer, our producer, Nico Malian. Uh, the director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Thank you for watching On Liberty.